the prayer, and then we can jump right in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we just thank you for the gift of this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of being able to sit together and dive deeper into the teachings of John Paul II. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you are calling us to yourself. I ask that tonight might be a night of invitation, a night of awakening deep desires, Lord, and that you would give to us as we awaken those desires the hope to trust in your faithfulness as our Father, and that you will provide every good gift for us. And we trust all this to your name as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In John Paul II, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. This is the fourth of our five-part series. Um, so last time we talked a lot about the grace that God gives to us, that in the inner man, in our inner heart of hearts, he wants us to love like he loves, um, but that he gives us the grace, meaning the strength, um, his own power to do such things. Um, tonight we're going to talk about eschatological man, I'll explain what that word means, and the sacramentality of marriage. Um, and I actually have slides because I made them four years ago, so that was convenient. Um, but I wanted you to see some of the scripture verses that we're going to be talking about. So I don't have notes for you tonight because I'm trying to keep it simple. And I just really felt called that tonight it was more me speaking and you listening and occasionally looking up here at the slides. So we're going to do it that way. Um, the font in this, as it transferred, didn't come out right. But the point is you should listen to this song by Josh Gerald called Beyond the Blue. Um, it's just a really beautiful song um, that kind of makes you think and helps you to go deeper, I think, in prayer. And so when we talk about eschatological man, what we are talking about is we're talking about the eschaton, meaning the end time. So what comes after this? So, you know, we talked about original man to review. Original man was man as he was in the beginning before the fall, before original sin. And then we talked about historical man, so man as he exists in history. So since the fall, and we all exist in that. We exist in history at this time. Eschatological man is going to be at the end of time, because time is a created reality. It's a little mind-bending, but that's true. Time will end, and eternity is everything that we will be living and existing in after time ends. And so that is what John Paul II is referring to when he's talking about eschatological man. Um, but what the heck does that mean? Like, what is it going to look like for us? Everything I'm about to offer you, John Paul II said it first. I'm offering to you what he said. I do not have all the answers because I haven't been there yet. So I'm just giving to you um, the little seeds of hope that he has offered us thus far, because there is a lot of hope. So the first thing is, um, based on when the Sadducees were asking Jesus questions in the Gospels, um, I don't know if you remember this story, but they were like, pretend that there's this woman, and she gets married, and then her husband dies. And the way that the old law worked is that if your husband died, um, his brother was supposed to marry you. Like, that's just how it worked. So they were like, let's say this happened seven times, and the seventh time her husband dies again. Like, who's she going to be married to in, in heaven? And Jesus' response to them was that, well, you're missing the point um, because there's something in heaven, um, as in God, such that marriage, the whole point of marriage has been fulfilled. And his major point was that God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living, which is this top quote. Um, 
And so he was saying, like, you know, you're wrong in your understanding because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And um, as a human person, John Paul II says this quote at the bottom, the reality of one's life does not end with death. So all of us, though we will experience a physical death, that's not the end of our lives. Every single one of us is a created human being. We are body and soul. We are an integrated reality, and we are meant to live for forever. So he says, understanding the state of eschatological man means knowing and welcoming with faith the power of the giver of life who is not bound by the law of death, which rules over man's earthly history. And what does God's word have to say about it? Well, God's literal word is Christ, right? And John Paul II says that Christ is God's final word on this subject, meaning the subject of death. He says, in fact, the covenant established with him and through him between God and humanity opens an infinite prospect of life and access to the tree of life according to the original plan of the God of the covenant. And it's revealed to every man in its definitive fullness. And this is the testimony of the paschal mystery. Um, So if you remember in the garden, what happened is, is after we ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we were banished. But if you look back in Genesis and you read it, the question is, why were we banished? We were banished because if we weren't, we would have had access fully to the tree of life. And the question for you then is, would we have wanted to exist? Do you want to live forever in this state of sort of brokenness? And I'm just going to tell you, no, right? You don't. So out of love and out of mercy, God the Father, he removed us from the garden. But what happens is, is that's not the end of the story. So his final word on the subject, on the subject of death, is Christ. So he sends Christ into the world, the Paschal mystery, which includes the suffering, the death, and the resurrection, right, of Christ. Um, That original tree of life, now realize Christ is the fulfillment of this. So Christ dies upon the wood of the cross, wood comes from the tree. Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, is the fruit of that tree. So the literal tree of life has been given to us again, but in and through the gift of God himself taking on all of our human nature. So he's redeeming us through this act, but he's also giving to us his very self in a way that we can receive him as in the Eucharist, right? So we now have access to receive the tree of life, the Eucharist, but, and that's why we encourage you to you know, go to the Eucharist when you're in a state of grace, meaning you've gone to confession, your soul's clean, so that you can receive the fullness of that, right? The fullness of what God wants for you. Um, another thing that people seem to forget about, which is unfortunate because I think it's super cool, is that we get our bodies back I know some of you might be like, oh, I don't know, like, do I really want that? Yes. So when God created each one of you, he created you as a, an integration of a body and a soul. You're not just a soul. So Thomas Aquinas has a lot written about this, and John Paul II loved Aquinas. And Aquinas looked at Plato and Aristotle. And for Plato, the soul was trapped in the prison of the body. Okay? For Aristotle, the human person was a union of the body and the soul. So Aquinas is going to follow Aristotle's route in his philosophy because he knew that there was something to the fact that we're not just souls trapped in bodies, right? This is not that this life is one that we're trying to escape so that we can ultimately be free of our bodies because they're a prison or a problem or a blockade from freedom and happiness and fullness of life. Um, That is a grace that we all actually have to pray for, though, I think, to see our bodies as the gift that they are. But that's why this is called the theology of the body. Because John Paul II, five years of teachings, he's trying to show us um, that it's not just that God has some things to say, but he has everything to say to us about the goodness and the dignity of how our bodies were made. That our bodies are part of who we are. That's the tangible way that I express myself into the world, that you express yourself into the world. That remember, this is the gate. That 
the greatest way that we can image God to the world is in our choice to love. I can only love another in and through the gift of my body because that's who I am. That is the way that I express myself. That is how I and each of us is called to offer ourselves as gifts, right? Um, oftentimes what we're talking about in these audiences is the spousal meaning of the body, the spousal meaning of the body, the spousal meaning of the body. What does that mean when I say the spousal meaning of the body? That means that our bodies were created in such a way that the point of how God created us is that each of us was created to be gifts, to be given as a gift and to receive the gift of another, right? The way in which I actualize or live out my freedom is in how and when and whom I offer the fullness of the gift of my person, right? Last week, we talked a lot about how freedom's not the end goal. Love is the end goal. In our culture, that's confused a bit, right? So everyone thinks like, well, freedom's the end goal, so I can just do whatever I want, and that's what's going to make me happy. And as long as I'm free, then I'm happy. So like, don't rain on my parade. I want to be free, right? But it just becomes a license. If I can do whatever I want whenever I want to, but I never have an end goal, I'm, I'm restless. Freedom exists for the sake of love, meaning love is that definitive goal, right? We were created with the gift of freedom, and God will never force himself on us, but it's how do we offer it. We most reverence and honor the gift of freedom we've been given when we lay down our freedom in the hands of another and give ourselves fully to another person as a gift. Does that make sense? A little bit. Okay, so resurrection of the body. Um, I basically just told you what this said. You don't have to look at the slides. But what he's really trying to get to is this part that's italicized. It's an integrated state of man. So remember, everything with the church is both and, right? Um, I did this before, but do this with your hands for a second. It's awkward with my hands. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put them together. Okay, and if you move one hand one way, like they're both going to move, that's an integration. If you split your hands so they can do whatever they want, that's a disintegration, right? What's the philosophical definition of when the body and the soul separate? It's death, right? This is death. So if Christ is the final word on that, what does that mean? That in and through his very sacrifice, Christ defeated death itself. That human nature now has the potential that death does not have the final word over humanity, because Christ came into humanity, defeated death, and therefore then we will follow him. He is the new Adam who leads us in this journey. Um, and so when we get our bodies back, he's saying here is that we're not transforming our nature into something that's, you know, purely spiritual. Meaning we keep our bodies. This other world that we're going to enter, um, I haven't been there yet. We haven't been there yet. We don't know everything that's going to look like. But the point is that you are going to be yourself. The key is that resurrection means restoration to the true life of human bodiliness, which was subjected to death in its temporal phase. So we will no longer in any capacity experience death, right? It's been defeated. Um, I did this for eighth graders. So resurrection of the body equals final victory equals perfect integration equals this is the end goal, y'all. Um, everything that we are, there will not be this like, interior battle and struggle for what's right and what's wrong. There will be an integration, he says, that our body will be submissive to the spirit, to our soul, right? It won't be this, like, mental cognition. It will be a freedom in that you will be one. You will be perfectly integrated in who you are, your unique body and soul. So um, the new meaning of the body, what does the body mean then? So in the future resurrection, human beings, having regained their bodies in the fullness of the perfection proper to the image and likeness of God, still being in their masculine and femininity, will take neither wife nor husband. Um, 
I first read that, I was like, mm, is this God? Okay, for a while I thought that was God because I didn't understand, which is why I kept reading it. So what he's saying here is, um, he says, marriage and procreation do not constitute man's eschatological future. So man's existence in eternity, it's not about marriage and having children. He says, in the resurrection, they lose, so to speak, their, this translates to their reason for being. That other world, so eternity, about which Luke and the gospel speaks, means a definitive fulfillment of the human race. The quantitative closure of that circle of beings created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? That means... When time ends, then we no longer, it no longer does that original um, command from God, uh, is it one that he's giving us, where he says, be fruitful and multiply, that's no longer the command. On this side of heaven, in this world, that was the command for human beings. But when we enter this other world, it's like the line is drawn. There's no more like new human beings, which is not bad. There's going to be a lot of us, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, Right? And that's in God's providential plan. Um, but what does it mean that you can hope for? Is that it's a union of communion. And he says it's a rediscovery of a new perfect subjectivity of each person. And at the same time, of the rediscovery of a new perfect intersubjectivity of all. Meaning, I don't care how close you think you are to anyone on this side of heaven. You will be closer to everyone you know when you get to heaven. Because you will be the most full, free you ever. The whole reason why God created you is that, right, like, he created you from love for love to return to love. Heaven is us returning to love. And so our interaction with each other in that fullness and in that freedom, we are most fully ourselves. You will be closer to every single person you love. You Think of it this way. I think sometimes when we read, we're like, marriage and procreation won't be there in heaven. We're like, oh, we lose something. God's like, no, 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 no. It's because they have served their purpose and you gain everything. Does that make sense? Easier way to explain it. Um, icon versus idol. So marriage and procreation do not determine the original meaning of the body. You don't have to read this. Icon versus idol mean. An icon, if you've seen icons, right, there's something that points us towards something else, right? If I look at a picture of my grandmother, then I remember who she is, but is that my grandmother? No, but it's a sign that reminds me of her. Right? Marriage is supposed to be an icon, a sign of God's love, of who he is. When we reach heaven, we're in the perfection of who God is, right? And so we're fully free in heaven with him. Does that make sense? So marriage has completely fulfilled itself and reached that space. Um, so everything he's saying is really at the bottom what we are meant for, y'all, is a face-to-face -face vision of God. You were created for supreme, perfect happiness with God the Father. That's what he is pulling you towards. And whatever your vocation is, in and through the gift of your vocation, that's how he's pulling you to yourself, to himself, and then also revealing you to yourself. There is something that he calls um, spiritualization, um, which is just a bigger word, meaning what we're talking about is like, Again, your spirit, your soul, and your body are going to be so perfectly integrated that we'll, there will not be this war in between. Um, something that he continues to talk about after this. I'm going to skip. I'm just going to hold this because it won't distract you. He talks about continence for the kingdom. What does it mean? So someone, like a priest, religious sister, they take vows, and they offer the, themselves up um, in, in a sense 
right? There's still, there's vows and there's a union, but it looks different than physical marriage, right? When people talk about continence for the kingdom, what they oftentimes will think is they'll be like, oh, well, you know, that must mean then this is better than marriage. And he addresses that. He's like, does it mean that that's better than marriage? And what does St. Paul mean when he says, like, they've chosen well? And he says, if you truly understand what continence for the kingdom is, then we have to look at the word for. Like, it's for the kingdom. It is a gift someone is offering. Their totality of their being, their body, blood, their soul, their sexuality, right, for the kingdom. There is still a union that is going on, but it doesn't look the same as a physical marriage. But he's trying to point out that we have to see that every single vocation, when it's an authentic vocation, it involves a union, a communion with an other, right? So this involves the union with the beloved. A religious sister, she takes vows. She is in union with her beloved. She's in union and married to Christ. When a priest takes vows, he too is in union with his beloved. He's in union with the church, his bride, right? We oftentimes, I think, struggle with seeing this, but it's not that um, celibacy and marriage are two completely different things, just like on opposite extremes. They're complementary. If you as a man can look at a priest and see how he lays down his life for his bride and you're called to marriage, your marriage will benefit in that freedom of seeing what it looks like for him to spiritually offer his life and vice versa, right? It all comes back to gift. How are we called to give a gift of self? And John Paul II, one of the things he says that I think is most important is he says it's not that, you know, to, to be perfected in love that you need to enter a religious institution, it's not that to be perfected in love, you need to enter a seminary. He says it's not a matter of perfection based on, we can really fall into this. We're like, it's objectively, it's a higher calling. People say that. It's a higher calling. Celibacy is higher spiritually, and so that must make it more perfect. So if I do that, then I will be more perfect. And John Paul II is like, no. It might mean in certain ways you might have options that are more conducive to growing in holiness, but God does not limit perfection based on the vocation. The best vocation for each of you in this room, right? Even if objectively there's a difference here in the way the Lord moves in holiness, the best vocation for each of you in this room on a subjective dimension is the one which your heart and you were created for, the one in which your heart comes alive, right? It doesn't mean you don't acknowledge the beauty of the other, but it's very, 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 very important. Our God is a God of desire. He does not exist to like diminish or to smash or to throw away desire. That is not how God works. It's not a God of oppression. It's a God of offering up the gift of desire through love. Love is what purifies desire, right? So all of this, if you want to be perfect, be perfected in charity, which means most of you haven't taken vows yet. So you're being perfected in charity looks like, you know, being a human being who's being perfected in love. And that's a preparation for when you do take vows. But this is not waste of time. This is the vocation you are called to right now, the present moment, right? And it's not complicated. I mean, hello. I could write a book on complicating everything in life because I do it in my head all the time in like five seconds. The simple answer and the reality is our call is to love. Who's right in front of you? Like, what is the Lord putting in your life? What are your life circumstances? You do not have to go searching for suffering. You do not have to go searching for options to love. You do not have to go searching for people to love. Just open your eyes, like literally, right? Who has God put in front of you? And then respond. 
God's always initiating. He's always pulling us out of ourselves for the sake of love. Because remember, the only way we will find ourselves is through a sincere gift of self. It's all about giving ourselves as a gift as well. So what he's trying to say is that instead of um, celibacy being something that says like, oh, conjugal, when I say conjugal, I mean married love, marriage, marital intimacy, sexual intercourse, all these things. It's all kind of the same. When I say conjugal love, you know, he's saying celibacy is not something that's saying, well, that's really bad. So, like, just give it up because it's just not that good. No. He's saying by people offering up this gift, this beautiful gift that comes through human desire and sexuality, they are actually holding it up and showing us what a gift it is. Because it's something, like, if, okay, let me think of an example. Hold on. Um, oh, like, okay, if I, this is so stupid. If you were to be like, hey, just fast, don't eat mushrooms for, like, the rest of your life, I'd be like, okay. Like, I don't like mushrooms. They smell weird, right? Okay, this is the dumbest example, but it's what came. But if you were like, Sarah, like, for the rest of your life, like, don't eat beignets or, like, cake or icing or whatever, I'd be like, mm, okay, right? Like, because I actually want that. I'm not saying it's good in a healthy way, but whatever. That was the example that came to mind. Like, the point is, it would not be something worth giving up unless it were a value, unless it were good. It's because it's so good that A, their sacrifice means so much, but B, it points back to the fact that this is a beautiful gift, marital intimacy that God has created within man and woman and their potential with each other. Does that make sense? It's a gift. And he's saying um, that however we are called, whether we're called to celibacy or whether we're called to marriage, um, all of it has to do with the fact that I, at the end of the day, as a human person, and you as a human person, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? What are you doing with the gift of your body? Are you offering it in pure love and as a gift? Are you offering yourself as a gift of love? to those whom the Lord has called you to, to those whom the Lord has entrusted to your care, right? And whatever vows you take, you will answer that call differently, but you will be perfected in love. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? Love is the bond of perfection because it all is connected, right? It's the Holy Spirit who gives us that grace. He is love itself. So however you are called to say yes to the Lord, you are called to honor the gift, right? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So historical man, which is all of us, um, John Paul II says we live in the tension. I really love that word because that's exactly what it feels like half the time, right? We live in the tension. We live in the tension of we know where we came from and we know where we want to go, but we're not there yet. And if you've ever held anything like there's a gift or mystery or things in your life and you're like the already but the not yet, like kind of, but like this isn't the fullness and you know that and it's like achy at times, that's what historical man is. Like we're living this tension, right? Um, so, perfect. Okay. This is a great timing. Halfway. Sacramentality of marriage. <laughs> I'd talk about this the whole time if I could, but we only have 30 minutes, and um, that's all we need. I think it's going to be great. So, it's based on Ephesians 5, and we're going to break this down because I think this is extremely important, and this is usually the scripture verse that in Mass, everyone's like, taught by this person, or did you listen to this, or did you pay attention, or the priests, they have options, they can make it shorter, which is really frustrating, but that's fine. Um, so let's read it. It says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands, or submissive, 
as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. So now we have to break this down into half an hour. To begin, important part. Um, the first sentence says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, to be subject to another or to be submissive to another, if we, submission is an easier word to break down, think of the word or the prefix sub means under. And mission, I mean mission. So under the mission, Right. He's saying first and foremost, though, that it's a mutual submission. Everyone seems to skip this statement for whatever reason. We are called as men and women. If you are called to marriage, marriage is a sacrament by which each party is to be submissive to the other. And it's kind of a really cool thing. If you are desiring the other's good, which is the definition of love, is I will the good of the other, then, then it works out, right? It flourishes. Um, submission does not mean, like John Paul II is very clear about this. Submission does not mean that I, so as a woman in marriage, you should never be submissive to domination. You should, nev should never be submissive to um, slavery or to being forced or anything like that. That's not submission. That's domination. It's the opposite, right? Um, Christ, Christ, JP2, we're talking about Christ, says that woman from her relationship with Christ that's what's going to serve as her motivation for her relationship with her husband and vice versa, a.k.a. you're not supposed to do it alone. It's not like you get married and you're like, bye, Jesus. You're like, hey, Jesus, I need you or this marriage isn't going to work because man and woman would go into this broken, right, and you're going to get on each other's nerves and you're going to hurt each other. But the spirit, right, love is the bond of perfection. Christ is the glue of all of this. Um, so... When he's saying to the wife to be submissive to the husband and that the husband is the head of the wife, he goes on to say, as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. And then he actually lays out and spells out the mission of men. What is the mission of men? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, a.k.a. he died for her, right? So, like, no pressure, but, like, that's your call, right? He's very clear, <laughs> even unto death, right? And the thing is, y'all, most martyrdoms today are not going to be, well, red, sort of. I don't know if that's statistically true. But white martyrdom, what does that mean? A white martyrdom looks like our lady standing at the foot of the cross, and her heart is broken open. And at times, it, for her, in that moment, it felt like a death, but she didn't physically die. Sometimes in love, we have to die, a lot of times in love, we have to die to ourselves, right? To our own egos, Right? 
And just imagine, like, marriage leads to children. Add children into the mix. Like, we're talking little human beings that run around and, like, everything you say, they repeat. All of your flaws come out and they're reflected back to you, right? So all of this comes back to, like, love has got to be the bond of perfection. But man, if man is called to lead in the relationship in a certain capacity, then what is his mission? His mission is to get up on the cross and to die, maybe not physically, but in all these other capacities for the sake of his beloved, right? Um, he then brings up, because this is talking about Christ, the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor, da, da, da. He's talking about baptism. Like, this is where everything starts, right, is baptism. The water is what cleanses us as children in baptism, but also through the mission and the sanctity of marriage, right, this vocation, this sacrament, we participate in our baptism. In our baptism, we were given a threefold mission, each of us, that you live out today. We were given a threefold mission to be priests, to be prophets, and to be kings. A priest is one who makes sacrifice on behalf of the beloved. A prophet is one who speaks out truth on behalf of the beloved. And kings and queens are ones who, they serve. They reign and they have power because first and foremost, they serve, right? That's what we are called to be to each other in marriage, or servants of each other and of holiness and of love. Um, a really cool picture you can look at because I just like it. This is the betrothal of Mary and Joseph. You can look up. There's a lot of different versions. I just think it's really beautiful, and it's in there, so I'm showing you. Um, specifically, an example would be, you know, when it says that the man is called to love his wife like he loves his own body. It's such an interesting thought for us to think about, like, loving our bodies, I think, especially in this culture and, like, media. And, I mean, I know men struggle with the same thing. I can only speak from a woman's perspective. But we have all these, like, issues with our bodies, you know, and, like, we think we have these flaws and these things. We don't see what the Lord sees most of the time. But he is saying that what this is, y'all, is we can't go back to the beginning where we're naked without shame. But if this is a bond of authentic love and authentic charity, then what this is calling us to is that this is supposed to be, like, sexual intimacy within marriage is supposed to be a place of freedom and play and delight. Because it's supposed to be a place of security. Because not just the words have been given, the vows, right, till death do us part. But physically and through your bodies, you're also expressing that, right? Um, and so there's a really beautiful quote from John Paul II in Theology of the Body. And he says, um, love binds the bridegroom or the husband to be concerned for the good of the bride, his wife. It commits him to desire her beauty and at the same time to sense this beauty and care for it. Pause. Usually we're all like, yeah, because like we're all beautiful people. We made the image likeness of God. And it's yes, but John Paul II is like, I'm talking about the body. It's not just spiritual. It's not just this sense. It's like the whole person includes her body, right? What is at stake here is also visible beauty, physical beauty. The bridegroom examines his bride attentively as though in a creative, loving restlessness to find all that is good and beautiful in her and that he desires for her. The good that the one who loves creates with his love in the beloved is like a test of that same love and its measure. Giving himself in the most disinterested way, the one who loves does not do so outside the limits of this measure and this verification. You could pray with that. I like to pray. I think it's great. The point is, it's not just a husband tells his wife or vice versa, like, I love you with my words. I love you. I love you. Like, sweet. But like, through the gift of his body, through the gift of, and what this is saying is that that's why vows are so important, 
this is supposed to be such a sacred, special, beautiful place of intimacy and freedom and security that the woman in and through her body, the man is verifying by affirming, like, through the love of his own body, the gift of her beauty, of her whole beauty, which includes the gift of her physical beauty, that that beauty, too, is something to him that's worth protecting and loving and, when necessary, veiling, right? But that he has this special place to play in the intimacy of a marriage that he gets to reverence the gift of this woman in and through the gift of her body. Does that make sense? So then he says, um, one might even venture the idea that the wife's submission to the husband, understood as what we've just said, means above all the experiencing of love. This is all the more so because this submission refers to the image of the submission of the church to Christ, which certainly consists in experiencing his love. The church as bride, being the object of the redemptive love of Christ, the bridegroom becomes his body. Do you, y'all, that is so cool to me. Like, what he's saying, like, okay, for instance, just thinking myself, in high school, you know, I grew up and I'm like, anything you can do, I can do better. I know, I still struggle with that sometimes. But the point is, like, I was competitive and I was like, well, we can just, you know, women's rights, like, we can figure it out, we can be strong, whatever. And, like, to learn, I had to really learn, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, when a man serves me, it's not because I can't do it myself. Like, by allowing a man to serve me, that's also a gift that I can give to him, right? He's not saying that this submission is because woman doesn't have a strength. He's saying that part of woman's strength is her submission. And what other mission, as any woman in the room, if you really think about this, if God is asking you to be submissive to a mission of love, to be submissive to a man who's desiring your holiness, who's desiring to love you in and through the gift of your whole person, so not just your words or your smarts or your abilities or whatever you could come up with, but also the gift physically of your body, like all of these things, all of you, right? Who would not want to be submissive to that? If this is a mission of love that he is living, if this is him walking and offering himself in love, then of course you want to receive that gift. And he's saying that your submission as a woman is an experiencing of love. Does that make sense? Someone's smiling. So I'm like, okay, good. Someone's listening. Good. Yes, y'all. This is really, really good. This is really, really good stuff. Um, two words to sort of uh, introduce to you. We talked a little bit about eros. So eros, think of eros as like passion. And um, it's a really, really, really good thing. And that's the way that the Lord made it to be. But sometimes people divorce it from agape. So you need the both and. So there's eros, which is passion. And then there's agape, which is the sacrificial love, right? Um, this John Paul II is saying is we need the both and. We want them to be integrated. So the passion is not divorced from the offering of loving one's spouse in and where they are in that moment in time. That you'll go through different seasons of life and even the intimacy of your love, right? Like that is like where you are called. Um, in that moment, wherever you find them, it's to respond to the gift of the person in front of you. That's your call. That's your holiness. So then he goes on to say that the importance of this sacrament, um, it consists in manifesting the mystery in a sign that serves not only to proclaim the mystery, but also to accomplish it in man. What he's trying to say is that, I just want you to imagine, y'all, like, imagine like you have this really old man who's your grandfather and he's super cool. And you're just a little kid sitting at his feet and he's telling you a story. 
And he's in trying to entrust to you that there's something that he's created you for that you don't quite understand, um, but that everything you've ever hoped for and everything you've ever desired, he wants not just that for you, but he wants more. And he's trying to say, like, the way that I bring you to myself and the way that I'll bring you to these gifts that I've created you for is by showing you on this side of heaven what I look like. I'm preparing you for my gaze by showing you on this side of heaven how I look at you. And he's saying that the primordial sacrament or the, the first and foremost, the original sacrament to do that, to show us the love of God, is the union of man and woman, right? That what marriage can be, which is not what it always is, but when we rely upon the grace of God, what marriage can be is that if you're a woman called to marriage, then you learn in an even deeper, more intimate way how God looks at you by the gaze of your husband. And if you're a man, then you can learn even more intimately how God looks at you through the gaze of your wife. Eyes not of asking you to be anything other than who you are, but your call is to be a gift, a gift offered and received in love, right? It's so like, imagine someone telling you that story and you're a little kid, you're like, that's everything I want. Like, what can I do to get that? And all he says is respond to the gifts that I've given to you and be a gift yourself, right? Do not be afraid to offer yourself as a gift in love. Do not be afraid. My favorite quote that I used last time that at least three people texted me for in the past week is from Love and Responsibility, same author, John Paul II. And he said, do not be afraid if love sometimes follows torturous ways. He said tortuous, y'all. That's like, ugh, right? He says, do not be afraid if love sometimes follows torturous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. And so everything here, y'all, is that this analogy is still at the end of the day an analogy. Love between husband and wife is similar to the love of the Trinity, but it's more dissimilar than similar. But it allows us to have almost this reflection of what God looks like. And he's saying, though, like, what a great call, then, that we have in a responsibility to reflect God into the world in and through the gift of this. But beyond that, he's saying, see then what it points to, that you were so loved. Every single person in this room was so loved that Christ got up on a cross and gave up his very life for you. That everything we talk about here, like having washed, like offered himself in love for his bride, like washing and cleansing with water with the word, like all of that looks like this. Like this is what you were meant for. A complete offering. He took his freedom. He was fully God, but he was fully man. And what did he do with his freedom? Right? He offered it up on the cross for each one of us because freedom exists for the sake of love and the end goal is love himself and love himself showed us how to do it sometimes it will feel like this um again grace is the part of me straight the path of human love one of my favorite traditions so i spent a few summers living in this village in bosnia called Medjugorje. anyway i love these places they're just really cool okay Point is, one of their traditions in Croatia um, is they have a crucifix. And when they get married, 
they'll put their hands, like the husband and the wife will put a hand each on the crucifix, um, and they'll take their vows while holding the crucifix, and then they're instructed to put the crucifix in the bedroom. And the priests tell them, like, when you have issues, go there first. Like, when you're fighting, go there first. But that at the bed, right, so this intimate space, but also this place of, like, where arguments are going to happen, like, this is where you run first is to Christ. And that sometimes they even say, um, they don't say you may now kiss the bride, you may now kiss the groom. They say you may now kiss your cross. Yeah, I heard that, Uh uh-huh. I know, like, what? But, like, ooh, because you're like, no, like, no, 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 that hurts. But, like, that's where authentic happiness comes in, right? Like, think about Good Friday, though, too. What do we do? We go to kiss the cross. Because it's the, like, extreme form of love. But we know that Good Friday is not the end of the story. If you are called to marriage and you want to be a saint, good news, that's how you're going to become a saint. But it will require, just like any other vow, a death to self at times. And I had to include this quote. I'm sorry. I saw this in grad school. (laughs) St. John Chrysostom was, like, a really great preacher. So this is what he told men. So it's not JP2, I'm giving you a different author, but this is what he said in reference to Ephesians 5. He said, you have seen the amount of obedience, so like submission, necessary. Now hear about the amount of love necessary. Do you want your wife to be obedient to you as the church is to Christ? Then be responsible for the same providential care of her as Christ is for the church. And even if it becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes. And even to endure and undergo suffering of any kind, do not refuse. Even though you undergo all this, you will never have done anything equal to what Christ has done. You are sacrificing yourself for someone to whom you are already joined, but he offered himself up for one who turned her back on him and hated him. In the same way then, as he honored her by putting at his feet one who turned her back on him, who hated, rejected, and disdained him, as he accomplished this, not with threats or violence or terror, anything else like that, but through his untiring love. So also should you behave toward your wife, even if you see her belittling you or despising and mocking you, still you will be able to subject her to yourself through affection, kindness, and your great regard for her. There is no influence more powerful than the bond of love, especially for husband and wife. Suffer anything for her sake, but never disgrace her, for Christ never did this with the church. Hmm. You didn't snap, Jake. I'm not saying if you're called to marriage, women, that you should belittle your husband. But what I'm saying is is that he's saying, look, men, oh, man, guys, like you are the ones that really lead the way in love in certain ways. Like you're going to both participate in that. But I'm telling you, if you are leading the way in love and in respect, if you are respecting your wife even when she struggles to respect herself, If you are inviting her to this depth of love by exemplifying to her what love looks like, by how you not just love yourself, but by how you love her, she will want to be submissive to you because your mission will be a mission of love. And because submission to her will not look like slavery, but it will look like a flourishing, like her becoming the most full version of herself. Another example of this um, from Fulton Sheen, who's a great writer. He says, 
that at the cross, Christ was actually solemnizing a spiritual marriage between himself and his church. As a pledge of that eternal union, he gave his body and his blood to his spiritual spouse. The church is his body because it is his spouse, right? He says that redemption means, in fact, a new creation. As it were, it means taking up all that is created to express in creation the fullness of justice, equity, and holiness planned for it by God. And to express that fullness above all in man, created male and female in the image of God. We are moving towards that in and through where we are today. We're moving towards a fullness of that redemption. This is our journey right now. Um, and this is second to last quote on marriage. This is a longer one, but it's worth it. Okay, this is all of us. We're in a space of seeking. So what does this look like? He says, marriage is organically inscribed in the original sacrament of creation. Man who is from the beginning, male and female, must seek the meaning of his existence and the meaning of his humanity by reaching all the way to the mystery of creation through the reality of redemption. There he finds also the essential answer to the question about the meaning of the human body, about the meaning of the masculinity and femininity of the human person. The union of Christ with the church allows us to understand in what way the spousal meaning of the body is completed by the redemptive meaning on the different roads of life and in different situations. Not only in marriage or continence or virginity or celibacy, but also, for example, in the many kinds of human suffering, indeed in man's very birth and death, through the great mystery discussed in Ephesians, through the new covenant of Christ with the church, marriage is inscribed anew in the sacrament of man, which embraces the universe. It is inscribed in the sacrament of man and of the world, which, thanks to the redemption of the body, is formed according to the model of the spousal love of Christ and the church, until the measure of definitive fulfillment is reached in the kingdom of the Father. Marriage as a sacrament remains a living and life-giving part of this salvific process. What does that mean? That means that if we were created as human beings and that our bodies have a spousal meaning, we were created to be gift. We were created to offer ourselves in gifts, to receive others in gifts, and the sacrament of marriage, so then those gifts, it becomes so real because you become so one that then a whole new gift of life is created. We are the only creatures that through our freedom can co-create with God in and through our rational nature. That is incredible. That is an honor. That is a privilege. That is a responsibility, right? It is beautiful. But he's saying whatever road of life you're on, whatever situation you're in, whether you're called to continence or virginity or celibacy, whether you're called to marriage, whether you're not there yet, and you're like, what am I doing? It's all a part of the Lord's bringing you in and through your life to himself. It's all a part of your story with him. History, break it down, his story, right? His story with you. That's your story. Your story is never divorced from God. And he's saying until we reach that end of time where then we no longer need marriage and we no longer need procreation because we've reached this other world, that marriage continues, but that this sacrament is not only a living sacrament, but it's a life-giving sacrament. That your salvation is being worked out by how you live this out. If you feel called to marriage, you are still called to be a saint. And how you live out your marriage and loving your spouse is how the Lord will sharpen you like he sharpens iron, right? How he will carve you. Think of the great masterpieces like the Pieta, right? 
Like he is forming and fashioning you. And at times that hurts. But the reason why we are submissive to his work in us is because he promises, right, to complete the good work that he has begun. That what we desire, every good desire we have, he has first desired for us. That he delights in every desire you have. And that I can stand up here today and tell you, all of your good desires, they are good because they originate in the heart of God the Father. And I can't tell you how he's going to fulfill all of them, but I can tell you that he will. In his own time, in his own way. And then on this side of heaven, even if you get every good gift you think you want, it will pale in comparison to the gift that is meant for you in eternity through heaven. Yeah, that's worth it, y'all. Like, that's so worth it. Um, the last thing, um, quote of C.S. Lewis for the night, just to review the fear of Christ and the reverence. Um, y'all, the world really misses, 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 misses this. Um, for the world... Sexual intimacy is like this thing, and it's just all about pleasure, and like, and they're not, why would we have adult stores? I'm just being real for a second. Why would there be sex toys? Why would there be pornography? It's like people just can't get enough. Maybe if they can't get enough, it's because something's not going right, right? Maybe we fail to see what this actually is. Maybe we fail to appreciate and reverence and wonder the gift of a human person in and through their body in front of us. G.K. Chesterton had some really great quote that I always forget when I'm trying to remember it and tell it in a talk, but it's something about, like, um, something about, like, complaining, like a man complaining for having, uh, like, not being able to see many women or something, and he's like, for the sake of even seeing one woman, like, life is worth it. What he's trying to say is, like, if you really understood as men the gift of woman, then you wouldn't be complaining. Like, you would understand that this is a supreme gift. That man, if God has entrusted to you the gift of a woman in your life, that is a supreme gift. And that's how he is creating you anew, 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 by how you offer yourself in love, by the gift that's been entrusted to you, by offering her a mission that her foundation is love. That in through how you love her, even physically, right, that's an affirmation of her person and vice versa. So he says that this is a spiritually mature form of that reciprocal fascination. That is to say, of the man for femininity and of the woman for masculinity, which reveals itself for the first time in Genesis, where he says that they were naked without shame. By calling on the couple to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, and then by stirring their desire for reverence in conjugal relations, Ephesians seems to highlight chastity as a virtue and as a gift. In other words, you see that the gift is such a gift that you don't want to do anything to harm it or abuse it. That what that looks like with human beings is that sexual intimacy in the most intimate way is not something that can happen all the time because someone gets sick or you have kids and the kids are sick or you're practicing natural family planning and it's a time of fertility and you don't feel like you can have more children. Like whatever it is, that's not the end goal. That's a huge, deep part of it. But the end goal is love. And love is not limited to just sexual intimacy, right? Sexual intimacy is bigger than, sorry, this is how we teach it in NFP, but sexual intimacy is bigger than just genital organs. Like sexual intimacy is like conversation, right? Accompanying each other through life. At the end of the day, like 
It's not like those happy marriages you see. It's not because it's like sexual intimacy and like they figured all this out and it was like perfect. No, it's because like this is their best friend that's accompanying them through life. And that's a colorful, beautiful, playful part of it that gives life to it, that brings color to it. But it's not the only thing, right? It's part of the bigger picture. The closing quote that I haven't used yet, I think, which is odd for me because I use it, I feel like, every presentation is actually from G.K. Chesterton. And I pray that you can pray for the grace if you are called to marriage. If you're not, whatever you're called to right now, that you would pray for the grace of childlike wonder, especially in reference to the people in your life. But if you are called to marriage, I pray, like, this is a just a quote that he created, right? But I see it as very much connected to theology of the body. Because if you can see it as a child does, that the Lord has entrusted to you the gift of an other, and that even sexual intimacy is a place that, because of communication and because of trust, right, because you can trust the other, because the other wants your good, because the other loves you purely and freely and totally, right, that you are then free to be like children in each other's presence, and that you can't live out naked without shame in the identical way that we did before the fall, but because you have love, it does echo back to that. That your love for each other in and through the gift of your body affirms the other so that you even grow more in who you are and more in love with each other. Because you also grow more in love with the giver of all good gifts. The one who gave to you the gift of your spouse who is God himself. So, the quote. I know you can read, but I'm reading it to you. It says, a child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I love this quote. And I bring it up at the end of this presentation because I really do pray for each of you that you can grow in the gift of childlike wonder. Because from our perspective, we have a lot of fear and love because we see all the ways that we're going to get hurt. We see all the things that might be taken away from us. We see everything based on our past prism, memory, blah, 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 right? And so we're afraid to even approach it. And then, oh, my gosh, the intimacy of a marriage, we're like, eh, right? Again, he said, do not be afraid if love sometimes follows torture of grace. Grace has the power to make strength the path to human love. That you might have the grace, each of you, to approach marriage not as an adult who has all these preconceived notions and ideas of how it needs to be and it's in your control and you're going to do it this way, this way, this way. But instead as a child of a good, good father who says, if you are called to marriage, it's because I want to give to you the gift. I want to give to you the gift of this person that I want to give to you a person that I can better reveal my face to you in and through the love of this other person. 
And when we can approach marriage and marital intimacy with childlike wonder, I'm telling you, that's what's going to replace the fear. Because perfect love casts out fear. And we can be like little children and receive it as a gift, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We will start to see his hand even more in all of this. That he desires to give you every good gift. And if that is your desire and that is your call, he will give it to you in his time and in his way. Be about what is in front of you. Because that is you giving a gift of yourself in the present. And that's a preparation for how you'll be called to give yourself in the future. Yes. You can pray to her, Ellie Guadalupe, or you can pray to him, Divine Mercy. You're the best speaker holder of vocation. Trust me. I've thought about this a long time. So for your own edification, do that. But let's together close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, so much for the gift of this night. Thank you for the ways that you have spoken to each one of us. Lord, I ask that you would um, just water the seeds that you have planted. Lord, that you would give life to all the desires in the hearts of each person present. Lord, that you would reveal to us the depth of our desires and that by doing so, you would reveal to us your face. Lord, again, I ask you for the grace of hope, the supernatural hope, that trust without seeing, that hopes without seeing, that we would know and trust in the heart of who you are as our good father and know that you desire to give to us every good gift, especially the gifts of our desires and the intimacies of our hearts. Our Mother Mary, we entrust all this to you, and I just consecrate every vocation in the room to the intercession of Pope St. John Paul II, to your womb. And we just ask that you who held Christ within you, who held God himself, the author of love, that you would teach us how to love and bring us to our own vocations, whatever those are. As we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.